Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 51. It'll be the verses 1 through 15. And Elder Brian will do that for us this morning. This is the word of the only true and living God. Reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Reading from the NASB 19, 1995, and this is headed, A Contrite Sinner's Prayer for Pardon in verses 1 through 15. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold your desire of truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I shall teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. It's the word of God. Amen. Amen. We see here that the psalmist is doing something that Human beings are, are sometimes very reluctant to do, and that is uh, admitting to his sins, admitting to his wrongdoing, then seeking something that even the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, seeking restoration. And that's God's business, is to seek restoration as opposed to condemnation. He does condemn, but First, the very first thing that uh, we, we see is God attempting to rescue, to restore his people. So we're going to continue on then with the, our study in Galatians. We come to this final chapter in Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, uh, which uh, in this final chapter is, by the way, the solid proof or the meat of scripture that
that uh, Paul has mentioned earlier. I want to comment on just a little bit on that. Um, as we as we begin our study here and complete our study in, in Galatians chapter 6, what Paul calls a solid food or we need a scripture is something that will probably make many of us uncomfortable. We may find a little discomfort in but what is what is happening is we will be reading the word of God and not opinions. So bear that in mind. If you if you are if you are convicted by what we read in scripture, it is the word of God, okay? Not suggestions, not opinions, but it's God talking to us through the apostle Paul. And I would have to uh, admit to you that in studying chapter 6 of Galatians, I'm plenty uncomfortable with it myself. Because if we, if we take a look at ourselves and we compare ourselves with the Word of God, with Scripture, what God desires of us, probably every one of us is going to feel a little bit uncomfortable saying, you know, there's is there room for improvement in my behavior, in what I am doing, in what I am thinking, what I am saying? So with that, we'll, we'll get in with it. But you'll find that years ago, I committed to a style of preaching called expository preaching. That means going verse by verse through the scriptures. That means not ignoring a verse or a passage because I'm uncomfortable with it or because people may feel uncomfortable with it. That means going through verse by verse and laying out exactly to the best of my ability what the Word of God is trying to teach us. On the other side of that, as you're sitting there receiving it, remember that you're not receiving opinions, but you are receiving the Word of God. So you will have to take it as it comes. So with that, the churches in Galatia, if you recall, allowed a major problem to develop within them, which Paul could not overlook. As, as Galatians opens up, we, we see that in this first chapter. And after hearing and, and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, talked to them by the Apostle Paul, the Gentiles in the church uh, allowed false teachers to come in, and those false teachers then tried to convince them of another gospel, what Paul calls a distorted gospel. Some kind of a gospel any other than what he had taught. And so he's very upset about that because, as you remember, these false teachers wanted the Gentiles in the church to convert to Judaism, right, to become Jews, to be circumcised, and to live under the Mosaic law. Forgetting all about the fact that Jesus Christ had come and he had fulfilled the law. So there was no, necess there was no necessity for this. But apparently the Jews were convincing 
up and challenging Paul's authority in his gospel. And their arguments persuaded the Gentiles to consider abandoning grace and the and taking on again the, the rituals and the ceremonies of the law to become Jews, and then they would realize their salvation. Contrary to what Paul taught them. So Paul in his letter condemned these guys. Remember that? <clears throat> condemned them for, for teaching a distorted gospel. And he said, let them be anathema. That's how serious Paul's teaching is. Let them be anathema. In other words, let them be sent to hell. <laughs> so in chapter 5, then we found another problem was troubling the churches. And we keep all this in context. Keep the reason for Paul's letter in context with Galatians 5, 13 to 15. It would seem that some of the Gentiles were ready to convert over to Judaism. But there was a few that were not. It would, it would seem that way because they seemed to be arguing about this false teaching and they were beginning to devour one another. They were biting and devouring one another in the church. Contentions, arguing going on. So Paul reminds them of something that the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. We covered this a couple of weeks ago. What? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ taught that. Thomas taught that. Paul was teaching it. So he reminds him in verse 16 of chapter 5. He says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He says, well, you know, how do I walk by the Spirit? And the only way we can figure that out is to say, I have to continually rely on the promises of God and say his promises are true. There's nothing false about it. And everything he says to me will come to pass. So we rely on that. Verse 20, the apostle warns them, about the desires of the flesh. And he names a number of things. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, but that's fighting and devouring one another. Jealousy, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and he goes on. Goes on into drunkenness and other stuff. So as chapter 5 ends, we find a fruit of walking by the Spirit, which is what? Exactly opposite of these things. The love of the, the walking by the Spirit produces love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The behaviors that are all alien to walking in the flesh. <clears throat> so chapter 5 ends and we see Paul talking about walking in the Spirit and keeping that review in mind. Let us read together our text then for today which is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Very beginning of the chapter. And Paul begins here, Brethren, if anyone is caught from any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so you, that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 
For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. From chapter 5, Paul clearly addressed a problem that existed in the Galatian churches at that time, the problem that uh, of believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, being forgiven, being saved, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, having all the promises of a most merciful and loving God, and yet walking in the flesh. Here's these people that are converted to Christ, they truly believe in Christ, they believe in everything that comes with Jesus Christ, mercy, salvation, forgiveness of sins, all of this, and yet still wanting to live like the world lives. So this is The problem is not unique to the place in churches, however, because the problem exists today in the churches around the world. Christians can fall into a great variety of sins, sins directly against God and his commands, and sins against one another. That happens all over the place. It happens all the time. Some Christians live almost entirely walking in the flesh. I heard one, I didn't hear, I read one comment by one professing Christian recently on Facebook. says, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. In other words, I'm not the, he's my Savior, but I'm not going to obey his commands. So in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul names all the sins of the flesh that trouble us, sins that weaken not only the one who sins, but guess what? Weakens the church therein. So what, what then must the church do about what Paul calls transgressions? Before that answer can be decided, we're going to have to go back for a moment to the 16th century. It was after Martin Luther's hearing at the Diet of Worms, Germany, that the Protestant Reformation began. Prior to that, he had hung his 95 thesis on the door of Wittenberg Castle, caused a real stir in Rome. He, he was against such things as, as uh, paying to bring your friends out of purgatory, praying to get yourself out of purgatory. And, and you had to pay for this. Send one into the church against all kinds of things like this. So, <clears throat> After Martin Luther's hearing and condemnation at this diet at Worms, Germany, this Protestant Reformation began, and believing Luther was absolutely correct in his biblical teachings and writings, Protestant churches started all over in Europe, up into uh, in Germany, up into England, and Switzerland, and Scotland, and, and uh, there was a question that arose. What is required for a church to be a true church? And so they came up with very minimum requirements of what was required 
First of all, the full gospel must be preached. Now you might say, well, what is, what is the full gospel? Well, the full gospel is more than simply, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that God raised him from the dead, and I'm saved. The full gospel contains what? All of the teachings of Christ, all of the commands of Jesus Christ, all of the all of the commands that came from Christ through the apostles. The whole thing about how Christians are to conduct themselves, how they're to behave in the world, how they're to behave in the church, all over the place. Secondly, the sacraments must be duly administered. What's that? That's the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those two things. And the third thing is, church discipline must be exercised. And if a church refused to administer church discipline, then according to the word of God, it did not qualify as a true church. So what is this, what is this church discipline? Well, church discipline is not for every minor transgression. Church discipline is a very serious thing and it may happen very occasionally. I've been a part of it once in, in my uh, experience in ministry, and it was, a, it was a very uncomfortable thing, but it had to be done. And the man, church discipline was against, it's very similar to Paul's experience that he wrote about. He'd fallen into adultery and he refused to listen. In fact, he said, it's just none of your business what I do in my life. This is a Christian, supposedly. So we followed the directions that Christ gave, and ultimately the man was cast out of the church. Very serious business. But there's there's a purpose behind church discipline, and that is restoration. It's not condemnation, but restoration. Always restoration. So a sin or transgression might be a private thing between two individuals. Or it could be that someone has an indisputable, indisputable knowledge going on or ongoing sin in another Christian's life. And Jesus taught us how we are to approach the one who sins. Matthew 18. 15 through 18, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault, what? In private, okay? Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now there's another step. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And then the third step. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then in verse 20, Jesus said something very important that must be applied to the church discipline when it begins and throughout its process. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. 
Now we use this phrase, we use this verse for the prayer meetings and all when church gathers, all that kind of thing. But in context, it's really it really has to do with church discipline. Because when there's an agreement in the church leadership that a person has fallen and refused to listen and continues in their sin, that ultimately they are cast out and Christ is saying, what you guys bind on earth is bound in heaven. The whole purpose being the restoration. There's a key phrase in Galatians 6.1. It says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So as you can see in Matthew 18, there, there are several steps required for this process. And the final step is removal from the church. If the re person remains unrepentant and continues in their sin, still, however, with a goal of restoration. So before we go on, let me return to Matthew 18, 15 for a moment. Jesus said, if your brother sinned. I want you to notice something here. He did not say, if your brother annoys you. <laughs> he didn't say, if your brother irritates you. We all do that to one another once in a while. We have that, human, that humanness about us. That's not what he said. He said, if your brother sinned. This comes under the heading of, of uh, forbearing or bearing with one another. Turn to Colossians for a moment. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I want us to read this together because it has to do directly with our behavior as Christians, especially with one another in the church. Colossians 3. Oh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It began in verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing, get this, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So we find Paul's same thoughts, same, the same line of thought here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. And Paul writes here, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing what? Showing tolerance right, for one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here Paul is emphasizing something that's going to take place in the church for it to be a strong church. Unity. Peace. We find in that bearing with one another is something that we must all do frequently because we're all different in one way or another. We still live in the flesh and yet we are all the same in Christ. 
We live individually in the flesh, all the same. So we find that bearing with one another is quite different in church discipline. Forbearance. There was a time in Paul's ministry when, out of necessity, he had to be involved in the church at Corinth, both for the sake of the church at Corinth and for the sake of the individual question, with the goal, again, being restoration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then 4 and 6, and then in verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1 and then 2, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Hmm. You have become arrogant. Now, Paul, Paul here is, is bawling out the church. You have become, become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver one, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the Lord, in the day of the Lord Jesus. See here, even, even Paul is writing here that the discipline in this case, had to be so severe because this man was unrepentant in his sin that he turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. There, this should tell us something. There are very, very serious consequences to continued unrepentant sin in the church. I've decided to deliver such a one as Satan. Mm. And the church was not only tolerating this deeds of incest, but it was boasting about it. Can you imagine these guys apart? Ho, oh, oh, ho, you know what this guy is doing? Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho. That really upset the apostles a great deal. So Paul gives the church a, uh, he gives the church leadership and a firm command. Okay? Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. In other words, they're outside, they're out in the world, God judges that. But he's saying to the church leadership, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's the seriousness of this kind of sin. Scripture does not say what type of suffering this man went through as a result of being excommunicated from the church, but his judgment was severe enough to bring about his repentance. How do we know that? Well, because Paul wrote a second letter, 2 Corinthians, and the church then, okay, this man finally repented. We don't know how, we don't know what happened. But the church, the man finally repented, and he wanted the church to allow him to return, come back in, and they would not allow it. Nope, you're a rotten guy, and we don't want you anymore. Paul said, wait a minute, he has been restored. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Sufficient for such a one is his punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive, get that? You should rather forgive 
and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. See how this affects the church? The church itself now in Corinth is acting contrary to this issue of restoration, contrary to forgiveness. No, we're not going to do that. And Paul says what? That no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul's concerns then is what? For both the spiritual health of the individual and for the entire assembly or the church itself. Because Satan is there waiting to take advantage of what? Anything, anything he can wiggle into and cause a disturbance. If the church neglects to be obedient to God's word, the church, the entire body will suffer. Restoration. Restoration is always the goal. The goal of discipline. So Paul goes on now. In verse 2, and he says in Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. What's he talking about? The false teachers from Jerusalem were trying to convince the Galatians that they must fulfill Mosaic law, and Jesus Christ fulfilled that law. So what then is the law of Christ? Saying, bear one another's burdens. Well, once again, look at chapter 5 and verses 13 and 14. Okay? We're going to read this about 100 times over the next year or so. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You were called to freedom in order to do this. It's the law of love. This is the law of Christ, the law of love, the law of forgiveness, the law of restoration. One night before, on the night before his arrest, his trials, and his scourging and crucifixion, Jesus spoke to his disciples after Judas had departed to betray, to betray him. And in, in the Gospel of John, okay, chapter 13, John, verses 34 and 35, he said, he's talking to his disciples here, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Okay? By this all, get this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Yeah, but you know how much that person annoys me? <laughs> if you have love for one another. According to Jesus' teaching, and affirmed by Paul, okay, the basis of our relationship with every Christian is love. Following immediately after verse 1, there's an imperative here in, in verse 2. We are to bear one another's burdens. In context of verse, verse 1, we're to include trespasses with burdens that Paul tells us to bear. 
trespasses, offenses, are included in bearing one another's burdens. We usually think of burdens as grief, perhaps loneliness, lack of a job, lack of income, illnesses, stress, that kind of thing. Those are, those are burdens. But here we learn that trespasses, trespasses is included in those burdens. Paul says that we are to restore one another who's sinning. They might they may not want your help. But they need your help because they are as much as a part of the body of Christ as everyone else. Therefore, help with the goal of restoration must be given in the spirit of gentleness, as Paul writes, both for the sake of the one sinning and for the sake of the entire body. Pride, then, we've mentioned this before, pride is not our friend. The pride that's down in here is not our friend. Beware of arrogance. Paul gives us now a lesson in humility. Verse 3. This is, this is neat. Okay? If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So we walk up, walk around all puffed up, thinking, you know, I've got it made. I'm mature. All these other guys are immature. I'm so much better than them. Paul is saying, wait a minute. <laughs> You're deceiving yourself. So in my view of myself, I say, huh, they deserve it. They deserve what happened to them. I knew this would happen. I knew, not, I knew this would happen to them. I would never do anything like that. <laughs> Ever do that? Do anything That's arrogance. Being better than someone else. Verse 3. Read it again. None of us is anything. We are to help one another because we are all subject to fall into sin. Everyone in this room is subject to fall into sin. Every Christian. And we cannot help another if we think highly of ourselves and the one sinning is below us. We can't, we can't help one another. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Back to Paul's letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He writes it, For who regards you as superior? What have you, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why do you boast and you think it's from yourself? Because whatever you have, you receive from God. Except for the grace of God, Except for the grace of God, we are all morally bankrupt. We must be reminded continually of two different things. One, Romans 7.18. What did Paul remember what Paul wrote here? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. And then in John, Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I am him. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, what, what does he say? Apart from me, you can do 
What? Nothing. So what does this mean? Well, continual self-examination must be the requirement here. Verse 4. John writes, But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself. That's sort of verse 4 in, in the Galatians. Uh, each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. One of the dangers, one of the dangers that we face as Christians is an inclination toward self-righteousness and pride and the bent toward quickly condemning others when they fail. We do that. We kind of have an inclination toward that. One of the dangers we face then is being able to recognize that and get rid of it. Poses a problem for the legalist, the tendency to hold her own spirituality up against the behaviors of others and being quick to condemn the sin of another brother or sister and being convinced of her own self-righteousness while blinded to their own sins. I told you this is hard stuff. Therefore, we are first to examine our own work. One sure way and convicting way to do that is to compare our what our behaviors, our behaviors, to compare what we're thinking and how we're acting with Christ's commands. How do I stack up against the teaching of Christ? And this is where it gets really uncomfortable. The writings of Paul and the other apostles back up what Christ said. And so the problem here is a common problem. We need to know the gospel. You can't rely on me or any other pastor at one hour a week to know fully what the gospel is, unless you've attended for 100 years. You can't, you can't rely on that. We have to know individually. We have to know what the gospel says. We have to know what the commands of Christ are. Paul says here in verse 5, For each one will bear his own load. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we give account for our lives on earth. Both the good and the bad. We will not be able to compare our work with the works of others. I can't stand before God and say, I know I was bad, but you know what John did? But Christ is not interested in what John did when he's talking to you. He's interested only in what you and I have done in this earth. So the question is going to be, did you bear the burdens of others? Did you 
find yourself able to forgive others? Did you work toward restoration when somebody had fallen? So the question we have to ask ourselves is, will I be able to say to Jesus, my Lord and Savior, I'm truly your disciple? Well, every one of us, think about that. You're standing before that day on that day of judgment before Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. Are you going to be able to say, I am truly your disciple? What does it say? You'll know my you'll know what you're my disciple if you follow my commandments. Well, what are your commandments? Well, I have to know the gospel. We better start reading. Solid food that Paul mentioned, the meat of the gospel we have studied requires a commitment, the practice of obedience of Christ's teaching, step by step. A couple steps forward, a step backward, step by step, toward the obedience of Christ's teaching, moving always toward Christian humility and maturity. Continually seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance. That's a sure way to bear our own load. See, God puts it in our lap. He says, I'm giving you a responsibility. Your salvation came free. It's a gift. This mercy is free. It's a gift. Eternal life is free. It's a gift. But he said, you got to you got to follow my commandments. Sure way to bear our own road is to begin to know what the teachings of Christ are. Yes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that uh, your word is true. We know that your word is is true in every sense and sometimes difficult but we accept the word father we we pray father for your forgiveness for the times when we drift when we go out on our own we and we walk in the flesh we pray for the leading of the holy spirit when we do that to restore us we pray for our brothers and sisters in this assembly to restore us that we we pray we are accountable to one another and that we always work toward restoration. And we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his resurrection and for all the things, Father, that you have prepared for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.